A quick personal note before we kick off the show this week. Murdoch has been missing for a while. You've noticed because you've reached out to me and asked, hey, are you guys getting along? Is everything okay? Yes. Uh, everything is okay in the sense that Murdoch is physically well and that our relationship is in great shape. Actually got to see him in person for the first time in a very long time um, this past weekend. We got to take in a concert together. It was great. But he is dealing with some stuff in his personal life that's rough. I asked him what it was okay for me to share, and he said he was comfortable with me telling you guys that he is currently working with his dad and his sister to navigate the maze that is his mom's dementia. And obviously, if you've gone through this or known anyone that's gone through any of this, that is just not something you can really prepare for. It is very tough mentally, emotionally, physically, and he has been uh, not not had a lot of emotional bandwidth or mental space to spare over the past few weeks. And right now, they're in they're in the process of trying to get her home um, as the holidays near, a discharge from the hospital, all of that. And so it's very, very complicated. He will be back. I don't know exactly when. In the meantime, you might get some solo episodes with me like this week. You might get some guest hosts like uh, Phil from last week. But do know that Murdoch's heart is in this and that we should hear from him soon. And please lift him up and send him the vibes Um if you think about him as he is navigating a very, very tough personal spot right now. But he wanted you to know he's okay, and he'll be back soon. So in the meantime, you know what they say, the show's got to go on. Here's rock and roll bedtime stories. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rumor and innuendo about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. My name is Brian. Wow. Um, listen, we love it when you write the show and ask us questions. It's easy to do. All you have to do is send an email to wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And this week, very happy to hear from Charlotte, North Carolina, Sean, listening to the show. Um, here's what he writes. I was a young teenager when Prince switched to the symbol. I knew the hits at the time, but not the extent of how talented he was, and my parents just thought he was weird. It wasn't until years later that I'd heard that he did this because he wanted to release music, but the record label owned his name. How much of this is true? Can you please do a deep dive? Because I feel like I don't know enough about this. Your loyal listener, Sean. Sean, thanks for the note. This is great, and we we have a lot in common in this space, okay? So let's start here. It's a little coincidental that we've been recently bumping into these stories about legendary artists, and I feel like I've been starting all the shows by saying, like, wow, you know, we've just been intimidated to really jump in on this artist. Though with Prince, we did cover a Prince story, I think, in episode two. Specifically, it was a little bit more about Stevie Nicks, but... It's Stevie Nicks, Prince, a song that they had in common. You can go back and listen to it. Um, but outside of that, we haven't done tons on Prince. Um, and, and this is similar with, you know, we recently talked about Bob Dylan. We talked about Neil Young. And both those guys have these monumental careers with tons and tons of output. Um, we discovered they both have catalogs that float around the number 40 for studio albums. I think it's like 39 for Dylan and 42 or 43 for Neil Young. That number's changing because Neil Young just put something out like a week ago or two weeks ago. Um, but Prince was just as prolific as these dudes and actually more prolific because those two dudes are still alive. So that 
amount of output has been stretched farther. Um, so the Prince catalog clocks in around 42 studio albums. Now, there's four soundtrack albums, there's four live albums, there's nine comps, uh, there's a sound, there's 17 video albums, and three of those, what I believe are in the, this would count in the 42 studio albums, three of those released posthumously. So that's an overwhelming amount of music. I don't know how you feel about that, but this is, that was always my thing with the Stones, right? It's like, I know there's the Beatles versus Stones dichotomy, but at least the Beatles, like, it's a manageable amount of output. The Stones, there's been so much over the years that it's hard to jump in and ever feel like you're really an expert. And I feel the same way to a certain degree about all these guys, right? Because 42 records, that's a lot of records. And, you know, Warner Brothers, who Prince had a contract with for a long time, they definitely felt like he put out too much music. Uh, Spoiler alert, that is indeed what leads to the central conflict in our story today. But I I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I want to talk about this symbol transition, right? There's so much we can jump into with Prince, but I think we have to start here. I was 10 when this happened, and I do remember it. Uh, Sean and I have like sort of similar stories around this. I remember it mostly as a punchline, you know, like just hearing people sort of talk disparagingly about it. And it was this other point of mysteriousness around an artist that I kept hearing about but didn't know a whole lot about. My perception was filtered through my parents' perceptions, much like Sean said. I think it's so funny. He said, my parents just thought it was weird, right, that he had done this. And I'm pretty sure my parents didn't care about what he had done or why he had done it because he was just this other liberal musician figure who was known for being provocative. So this was just more evidence of that, right? It was just this self-fulfilling prophecy or or self-fulfilling opinion or whatever. So a a couple of things to note, though. Prince has always been an interesting musical person in my life because since I was a preacher's kid in a conservative household, my relationship with the music of the time when I was growing up, like in my childhood, was fraught with this good-bad dichotomy, right? There wasn't anything in the middle. And in my elementary understanding, I grew to associate the bad side of that with like noise, like loud guitars, heavy music was was that, right? That was offensive and contradictory to the beliefs of my household. So Prince was a strange anomaly because I understood to some degree that he wasn't loud, heavy music. Now, it was clear that he was off limits, but... Any little bit of his output that I heard didn't sound scary. Like, I know this may sound strange to you as I explain it, but I was just always perplexed on why this was bad because it didn't sound bad, right? That That's a totally elementary confusion, but I was literally elementary. I was 10. So these are the thoughts and reckonings of a child. Second thing to note, and after hearing from Sean and poking around myself, I think this lack of understanding around fin- around Prince it, in general and specifically around the symbol transition is actually fairly pervasive. So I was Christmas shopping for my nephew just a couple days ago, and I found a children's book about Prince. Now, no spoilers here if my brother's listening because I chose not to purchase this book, but I was fascinated when I flipped through it because they cover the name change. In this book that's clearly for, like, toddlers, right? And 
This book purports that Prince made this name change to basically mix the symbols for male and female and show that love is bigger than our understanding of man versus woman. So this illustrates a couple things. One, the woke meter is out of control at that publishing house because while that might be how he came up with a symbol, it is not why he moved to the symbol, and that's documented. The whole thrust of this book was to paint Prince as a forefather of the LGBTQ movement, which I'm not saying he didn't have a huge influence but that is an overarching narrative. It seems a little disingenuous. Like, I think he was, but I don't think the intention was necessarily there. I think Prince did a lot of things because he didn't care. And I think he was very much a proponent of people doing what they wanted and what felt good and being themselves. And I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that he wouldn't want this sort of this thing attached to him. But I... I don't think that Prince woke up in the morning thinking how he was going to advance that. I, like Again, I'm not Prince. I don't know. But it, this book was very heavy-handed in that messaging, which I found really interesting. And in the research for this episode, I did see that some places, but it's never super heavy. That tends to be sort of on the periphery. What really people want to talk about when they talk about Prince is his creativity in general and his creativity when it came to music and his prolificness when it came to music and his vision and how he thought of himself as a celebrity and as a musician and what his place was and how he thought about his place. That's more of the conversation, right? So I I also think this whole example reinforces Sean's reason for writing the letter. And it makes me feel better about being always confused by this because it's clearly... Like, the messaging got lost somewhere along the way to pop culture around the symbol. I don't think Prince changed his name to a symbol. That narrative has has really translated to a new generation. So, let's translate it. Let's dig in. First, Prince is not his stage name. Prince is his given name. But Prince is a stage name. It belonged to his father. Both his parents were jazz musicians, and his dad used to go by the name Prince Rogers. Prince, as a kid, did not like this name and tried to get people to call him Skipper. (laughs) Just imagine if he kept that as his name. Um, Also, let's put this period that we're going to talk about, the symbol name change thing, on the timeline of Prince's career. So, He's making music with his cousin's husband as early as 1975 in this band called 94 East. In fact, by this point, he's actually writing music. Um, This is a song called Just Another Sucker. So you get the vibe, right? Like early on, he's he's in this place. Um, so he is getting a recording contract before he's out of his teenage years. That's how fast it happens for Prince. And really interesting geographic element to this story. He's in Minneapolis, right? People know that now. And this is the 70s. So there's not a lot of music business infrastructure yet. So he ends up getting help from this guy, Owen Husney, who's known as like just a, an ad guy. like He owns an ad agency. And 
he takes Prince on as a client and becomes his manager. And to fast forward a little bit, they get a lot of interest from labels, but they end up signing with Warner Brothers. Now, interestingly, this is the late 70s, and this is very close to the same time when Neil Young switches from Reprise Records to Geffen Records. We discussed this in a recent episode, and I bring it up because if you partook in that tale, you're going to remember that Neil got lured by two C-words, creative control. Now, those have always been catnip to artists inside a capitalistic system, right? And Warner dangles them at Prince, too. I I find this fascinating. I don't have a lot of details as to why they agreed to do this, but he was very young and unproven at this point. But they tell him he gets three records and he gets publishing, which is just a phenomenal deal, especially when you look back at what the other deals the record industry was handing out at that point. So April of 78, we get the first record. It's called For You. Prince plays all 27 instruments on this bad boy. He writes everything, and the only credit he shares is on what becomes the hit. And you may know the hit. It is called Soft and Wet. This is where the prolific period begins, right? He starts putting out albums. We get records in 79, in 1980, in 81. He forms a side project with The Time and lets Morris Day do the vocals. In 82, we get 1999, which is a double album. And then he insists that his management gets him a movie deal, which is a pretty insane thing to insist on at this point in a career, but they're able to do it. And in 84, we get Purple Rain, which is quite the streak. Uh, at one point in 84, Prince simultaneously had the number one album, single, and film in the U.S., the first time a singer had achieved that feat ever. Uh, he wins a freaking Academy Award that year. That is how bonkers things get for him quickly uh, from 79 to 84. So in a five-year period, he's he basically gets to the top of the world. This is also the period in which Andy Warhol gets obsessed with Prince. I don't know if you know this. He did 12 paintings of Prince. Um, And it's around this time that 11-year-old Corinna Gore turns her stereo up too loud while rocking out to Darling Nikki. (laughs) And her mom, Tipper, decides to start the PMRC. We've spent plenty of time on this show talking about the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Council, and what it did for bands like Wasp. Um, but it actually starts with Prince, which is the thing I, I'm not sure people know or remember. Um, I, and also a plug for another pod. If you want to get even more into the Parents Music Resource Council, even more than we did, there's a great show that is a, a little similar in spirit to what we do here at Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, but it's called You're Wrong About. And it's uh, some journalists and writers who take all sorts of like big moments in history and, and reassess them with hindsight, right? And talk about them. And so they, they do several episodes about uh, Tipper Gore and the PMRC, and it's, it's really good stuff. I, I highly suggest after you've exhausted our catalog. So in this uh, first five or six-year period, Prince scales some mountains. I mean, he's producing at an insane pace, and he's crossing mediums. But the next five, six, or seven years, not quite as successful. 
Purple Rain is the film that Prince is known for, but you may not realize that between that movie and the name change period in 93 that we're going to get to, which is about nine years, there are three other movies, none of which do very well or that you probably think about much. And of course, there's other iterations of the band. There's tours. There's a lot going on. And ultimately, this is what puts him at odds with Warner Brothers. It isn't that he won't fulfill the contracts that they have, because that's typically what these stressful situations are, right? It's the artist isn't living up to what they said they would deliver. No, not the case with Prince. He's overproducing. Now, it's easy to sit here in the shadow of Prince's legacy inside with him, but I will tell you, I don't think it takes a marketing degree to understand the value in scarcity. Supply and demand, bro. And in Warner Brothers' defense, there is no scarcity when it comes to Prince, really throughout his entire career. But especially in this period in the early 90s, he's just shoveling output into the market. And I mean, this is real. The first place I learned about Prince was from a discount cassette bin at a Big Lots. Like, I remember digging through that and being like, oh, I think I've heard of this guy. Yes, my mom loved Big Lots, man, still does. I I was confused as a kid because I knew what Big Lots was. There were was no, no, you know, no illusions there. And I also knew who Prince was or was purported to be. So this seemed weird to me that the two were meeting. And this was exactly why Warner Brothers was upset. He had flooded the market, very literally. So great piece in Far Out Magazine written by Jack Wadley about this whole thing. I'm leaning into it here. Quote, the label was keen to ensure that Prince released fewer albums and addressed the problem in 1993. Naturally, Prince disagreed with the decision and took direct action to fight the apparent oppression he was under as an artist and began his tirade by performing with the word slave written on his cheek, which, as one can imagine, caught a bit of attention from the press. But, and and Jack says this in the piece, like, Prince was known for being pretty over the top on stage, so it didn't get that much attention. And... I I feel like I point this out in every episode now, but it's always worth the reminder. This would be a totally different cultural conversation now. It would be over in like three tweets. This shocking image would flood everybody's feed. And then by noon tomorrow, there would be 37 think pieces on the internet about this whole thing. There'd be a trending free Prince hashtag. But in 93, Prince has got to do something drastic if he's going to get attention, right? I mean, the press is only mildly irritated by this whole thing. Um, because he has set the bar so high for his flamboyance. So how's he going to get kids in the Midwest and South like me and Sean to even know that anything's going on? Because right now this is just, this is contention between him and his record label. It's, it's legal mumbo jumbo. So he legally takes away his own name and that does it. That turns up the temp. Now Prince puts out a public statement. I'm going to go back to far out magazine here in a statement Prince was clear to point the finger, name names, and generally hold Warner Brothers to account. Clearly intent on being as evocative as possible by defeating the stranglehold they had on his work. Now, this is quoting from Prince's release at the time. Prince is the name that my mother gave me at birth. Warner Brothers took that name, trademarked it, used it as the main marketing tool to promote all the music I wrote. The company owns the name Prince and all related music marketed under Prince, and I became a pawn 
to produce money for Warner Brothers. So this is Prince's line of reasoning. If you're not going to let me control my own name, I will not use my name. I mean, it's a power move. It is a power move of the highest order. And if you don't believe me, let's just sit back and do this mental exercise. Think about the implications to him versus the implications to his record label, who he is trying to frustrate and illustrate something. Doesn't actually do much to Prince, given that this is a point in his career where he's pretty well established. And he's always been strange. Like we said, the slave thing didn't actually get that much attention because people just expect him to be a provocateur. So when he does this, his fans are hanging. But you know who it's going to be really annoying to? His record label. Here's the best example I can give you of how annoying this had to be. Warner Brothers has to actually send floppy disks that contain the symbol as a glyph so journalists can write about him. Think about that for a moment. It, there is not a way on a keyboard for a writer at Spin Magazine to mention Prince. <laughs> Power move. Power move. Now, here's where we get that question we skirted earlier about why he chose this symbol. Remember the children's book? I mean, it is true that this is considered the love symbol now and it combines gender. But in his statement during all of this, Prince actually says on the record, quote, it is an unpronounceable symbol whose meaning has not been identified. He does say it's about thinking in new ways. You could adapt and expand that to include sexuality and gender, I guess. And listen, Prince wore bikini underwear and high heels at a Stones concert, so God bless the man and all he's done for LGBTQ culture and rights. But Prince was definitely at this moment thinking about new forms of music distribution more than he probably was thinking about, you know, forms of sexuality. But where did this symbol come from? You know, there's almost this lore that it was like scribbled on the back of a napkin. He says that like it came to him during meditation. And there's another version of the story where he says that it came to him from his backup dancers. Um, two very important backup dancers, actually, Maite Garcia, who he eventually marries. And the other backup dancer in this story is Tara Lee Patrick, who eventually changes her stage name to Carmen Electra. So he says those two gave him this. Um, side note, 1993, Prince produces an album at Paisley Park for Carmen Electra. That is a pop cultural artifact. I am not going to play it, but it's out there. Okay, so here's, here's my take. Prince, smart guy, he is, if he's going to make a maneuver like this, he is going to do it in the right way. And if he's going to play at this high a level, he is going to bring in professionals to help him create the thing that he is going to make his name. He's not just going to, oh man, somebody mentioned this. I saw this in a vision, right? Like there's going to be more forethought. And one of the cool things about Prince is he always kept this love and affection for Minneapolis and tried to show Minneapolis. I mean, he always called it his hometown, right? And so when he needed something done, he would sometimes turn to people in his city or even in his neighborhood. And in this case, he turns to a designer down the street from Paisley Park, and it ends up landing to Mitch Monson. Mitch Monson had just gone out with a couple of other guys to create their own design agency. And I, I found an interview with Monson. It's in the show notes. You can look at it. 
he goes into great detail about all the elements they put into this symbol. It's not just male and female. It's the Egyptian Eye of Horus. It's yin and yang. There's a lot happening. And when they get the gig designing this, they don't know this, what it's being used for. They figure it's going to be in an album design or something, right? They do not know what is going to literally become how people have to refer to this man. Uh, which is nuts. Uh, but but what does the rest of the world think, right? Sure, it's a power move between an artist and his label. But, you know, does it really play for everybody else? Album sales are slow, but to Warner Brothers' point, he's oversaturating the market. And when he is now under the name of the symbol, just to like rub salt in the wound, he starts releasing just whatever he can find. He actually releases during this time the Black Album, which is a record that had been shelved a few years before and had been bootlegged and circulated among fans for a while. So he does an official release of it just because he can during this period. 1996, he finally gets free of Warner Brothers. And how do you think he celebrates? He releases more music. Do you think a double album would be appropriate? I do, but not Prince. Prince releases a triple album called Emancipation. And to really make sure he's able to maximize what he puts into the market for this, he puts a bunch of covers on this album. I had no idea that Prince ever covered Joan Osborne's One of Us, but he did it on Emancipation. Now, the critics don't love this period of Prince, but part of it is he has clearly made their life very hard. They can't really properly refer to him when they want to write about him. So even if they had a positive opinion, it would be a a hard-fought thing to put that into writing. But, I mean, overall, he weathers the storm okay, right? On May 16th, 2000, he holds a press conference, and he basically is like, Cool. All that bad stuff with my name is over, aka the Warner Brothers drum the Warner Brothers drama is done. So you can call me Prince again if you want. But the symbol stays. Through the rest of his career, he uses this symbol as a major part of his image. And we haven't even mentioned the guitar, the guitar he makes in the image of this symbol. But I think the real takeaway from this story has most to do with what Prince was able to do for this idea of artist control. He was creating the model for artists creating their own image and their own independence in the internet age before the internet age. This is sort of what they mean when they say ahead of his time, right? Jessica Lusenhop wrote an article for the BBC when Prince passed in 2016, and she put it this way. Prince produced music on his own independent label. He bundled exclusive LPs with concert tickets and newspapers. He became one of the first artists to sell an album online. And this is a fun, interesting thing. He won a Webby Lifetime Achievement Award for, quote, visionary use of the internet to distribute music. Right? But 
this idea of making songs and releasing them whenever you want probably doesn't seem that revolutionary if you're a younger person in this audience. But in the 90s, when you were a product, or as Prince pointed out with his stunt, your name was a product, this mattered. And he showed that there really was a different way of doing things. I think the other interesting thing about Prince in general is he really pushes this conversation about who is the artist creating for? Is the artist creating for an audience? Is the artist a product? Or is the audience just, are are, are they casual observers coming along a journey, right? And you can argue this both ways, but I mean, Prince made a lot of money. And, And even though his record label also made a lot of money, he made a lot of money with his art. Um, and so this this idea of this purity around your art because it's not diluted or besmirched by commerce can't really apply here. But he takes this argument about as far as it can be taken, which is I'm going to do and create and make on my own terms and no one's going to tell me how much I can put out into the world. Only only the fans can tell me, right? If they don't buy it, if they don't like it, if they don't want to be a part of it. But I am creating for something more than the, the commercial value. And so obviously Prince, very ahead of his time in a lot of ways, but his business savviness and his uh, real sense of self are uh, are other things that he had way before a lot of other artists were able to sort of muster the courage or, or find the bravado to push on those issues. Man, I'm super glad that Sean sent that email. If you've got something you want us to check into, we're happy to do it. We are the story guys at gmail.com. That's where you send that. We are the story guys at gmail.com. You can check out everything we're doing at our website. We are the story Find us on Facebook too. And um, until next time, you know, just do us a favor. Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.